You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Good morning. You please be seated. I um, I'm certainly glad to have my wife of 45 years with me here this morning. Well, we're coming up on 45 years. We, we've been together 46 in the biblical sense of uh, 45. Uh, I always look forward to my, my visits here to Salem, um, and I've had the privilege of having what I would call a front row seat to the many transitions that you've been through. And there have been many, and you have transitioned well. 20 years it's been. And I don't have that kind of history with many churches. Um, And when I'm finished this morning, you will understand why. (laughs) No, all seriousness aside, I, (laughs) I, um, I treasure the relationship that we have been developing uh, with the Dandrianos. Uh, they truly occupy a very special place in our hearts. They were just with us two, three weeks ago. Time runs together for me, but it was about two or three weeks ago. Uh, I don't know whether they shared with you or not, but my wife and I have been hosting uh, retreats for pastors and their wives for the last couple of years. And we have pastors and their wives come in from all over the country, and we always keep it small and intimate. We invite five couples. And uh, the results have been more rewarding than we ever imagined. In these retreats, I hope it's okay if I take a moment just to share this, because this is really at the heart of where we are now after all these years of being involved in ministry it's been our heart to minister to ministry. And so we bring couples in uh, without any agenda, without any expectation. We love on them for three days. We give them a safe space in which they can open their hearts. I think you experienced that there. It truly was a safe space, and, and it has been quite amazing the grace that's been on it because, you know, when you get people into a room that have never met one another, for the most part, it can be incredibly awkward. But the chemistry is almost immediate in all of these retreats that we've hosted so far. Uh, To see them leave refreshed, to see them meet our other friends, because as I travel, I'll be talking with someone, and I'll say, oh, I'd love for you to meet Bill Dandriano, or I'd love for you to meet, and I mention someone. And to make this happen is a great joy for us. It's so fulfilling after all of these years. And so, yeah, it's uh, to be able to come in a little early and spend some time with these guys, uh, relationships to me, Uh, especially at this age and stage in my life, 
are far more important than any accomplishment, any accolade, anything that I could ever have bestowed upon me. I, the older I get, the more I realize what a treasure it is to have relationships that have longevity. And I mean that with all sincerity. I mentioned I've had the privilege to assist, I think, in some way. I hope I have not been an impediment to assist in the many transitions in leadership. And even I very possibly was somewhat of an instigator in some of the theological transitions you made um, 20 years ago when I began to come in and challenge so many of the ideas that have been held for so long, especially, and I feel like I'm drifting here, so I'll get back, especially as it relates to the subject of eschatology. I, I, I remember that all, all too well, plowing those fields, but it has been a great joy to be a part of that. I'm going to ask you to turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 139, Psalm 139, and I will put you on notice as well that more than likely I have addressed at least some variation of this topic in one of my previous visits, but in the words of the Apostle Peter, I will not be negligent of putting in you in remembrance of certain things, over, even though you may feel that you are well acquainted with them. So in Psalm 139, let's read the ruminations, the reflections of David as he is attempting to wrap words around this epiphany that he has, this aha moment, as we would say. I have an affinity for the Psalms, as many of you do, and probably the Psalms are most read of all biblical literature, and I think it's possible that the reason why we gravitate toward them so consistently, as much as we even do the Gospels, is because we find ourselves on the pages of these Psalms, the, the wide range of human emotion the honesty and the candor um, is, is so palpable when you're reading the Psalms. And so in Psalm 139, David writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know me when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted, well acquainted, I would say, with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, the inescapable presence of God? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. That's good news, isn't it? For those of you that are going through hell, you're there. 
If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I had planned on stopping there, but when I heard this prophetic word that came earlier, I thought, oh, I must be on the right frequency on what I'm sharing when I heard the prophetess say, for you formed my inward parts and knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. How beautiful the poetry of this psalm. And I want to reassure you and calm your nerves and let you know that even though I read a total of 11, 12 verses that I have no intentions on examining every nuance of everything that David said. But it is my intention to talk to you about learning to be present to the presence of God. Learning to be present to the presence of God. I think that you would agree with me that the complexity of our culture has in many ways robbed, robbed us of intimacy it has robbed us of innocence, is, has robbed us of intuitiveness as well. Maybe you've heard the story of a young couple who had a four-year-old girl who had just recently had another child, and it was a little boy. Love this story. They brought the little boy home, prepared the nursery, and no sooner had they gotten home with this new infant boy. The little four-year-old sister was so in, insistent, I want some time alone with him. And they weren't quite sure what her intentions were. They felt, you know, surely there needs to be supervision with this new one that's in the house. Finally, they conceded to let the little four-year-old girl go into the room alone with her little brother only with the door cracked as they peered in as to what was going on. They leaned in and they heard the big sister whisper these words. Would you please tell me what his voice sounds like? I'm beginning to forget. When I read that precious story, it made me realize how many of us, again, with all the complexities of our culture, it is in many ways taking us away from this simplicity of being able to hear him whisper, being able to be, a, to be truly present to his presence. Would you agree with me on that? I think I'm on to something if you'll come with me on this journey for the next few minutes. See, the, to me, the question is not how, and listen to this closely, the question is not how am I to find God, but how am I to let myself be found by Him? The question is not how am I to know God, but how am I to let myself be known by God, as paradoxical as that sound. And finally, the question is not how am I to love God, but how am I to let myself be loved by God? It probably sounds extremely strange to you, but God wants to find us as much as we want to find him. 
Surely I've said this in previous visits, but usually when we are rehearsing our conversion experience, we usually start this way. When I invited Jesus into my life, and then you begin to describe the context in which that happened, I think the truth is, is it was not so much that we invited him into our life as much as he invited us into his and, uh, you know, Jesus makes it clear, doesn't he, in the Gospels? He says, it is not you that have chosen me, but I that have chosen you. Now, David, obviously, if you know anything about the psalmist, if you know anything about this man whose profile stands head and shoulders over most in Scripture, that he truly was a bundle of contradictions like most of us. He was a poet, and he was a lyricist. He was born, he was both tender, and he was violent. He had a heart after God, yet he had this tendency toward lust. He had moments of faith that were exemplary, no doubt, and moments when it seemed he was even bipolar, expressing his distrust in God. Now, I can identify with those wide sweeps in emotion, and I don't think that that is being disrespectful to the psalmist, but it is true of him, isn't it? I, I think sometimes we venerate these biblical characters to the point until they're untouchable. They're larger than life. I, pre, I appreciate the authenticity that is given to us in the Scripture about these, again, larger-than-life personalities. And again, I repeat to you, I think that he was truly a bundle of contradictions like most of us and so what we're reading in those verses, if you were paying attention, he, he's ruminating, he's reflecting, and he is captivated not by his thoughts about God, but God's thoughts about him. Are you listening to me this morning? I mean, the tone of this is basically David allowing us to eavesdrop on his self-talk. And self-talk is critically important, especially now when we are caught up in a dominant narrative that is trying to hijack our imaginations, that is, that is doing its best in a very insidious and intentional way to dominate our way of thinking. And I, when I read these psalms, particularly this one, Psalm 139, you, you can hear him, can't you? This is self-talk. This is a part of being self-aware. You know, one of the things that I encounter so much right now when I'm interacting with people in, in person, you know, and I'm helping them navigate the challenges in their life is that I am made aware of their lack of self-awareness. And this is critically important Learning how to take up the script of the Psalms and learn how to have healthy internal dialogue is probably more important now than it's ever been because all of you have a subconscious playlist, uh, a list that is on a loop that is constantly playing. It's, it's almost like, as we would put it in today's culture, an echo chamber where this self-talk is constantly running. 
And I think what is, is so very important to keep things into perspective because if there's ever been a time when perspective is important, it is now. Perspective really is everything. Is to be, is to challenge our thoughts and to ask ourselves, do I know that that's true? And if I can't without hesitation answer the question whether it's true or false, then I have to follow it up with the question, then how would my life be different if that's not true? So again, this is, this is really his self-talk. And so to me, and this may seem profoundly simple, but to me, the most important thought that you will ever have is the thought that you have about God. This is something that I really want to explore here in the next few minutes. The most important thought you ever have is the thought you have about God because that will in turn will reflect the way you think about yourself and the way that you think about other people. Now, that may be too elementary, and maybe I should have apologized in the early going for the simplicity of this. But remember I told you I felt like that the complexity of our culture has hijacked our imaginations. It has, it has taken us away not only from being present with God, but being present with other people. You know what it's like, don't you, where you look into the eyes of someone that, that you desire intimacy, intimacy from and it seems that they're glazed over. Probably the most generous thing that you could ever do, the most generous virtue that you could ever extend to anybody is the virtue of listening to them. Because very few people today really feel like they are really seen or heard. I mean, I, I love the word respect, respect, re, again, the prefix re, again, spec, to see again. Most of the people that you assume, and many of us are committing a word that I was recently introduced to, assumicide, I, I, I got an email that had this word, a suicide in it. And I thought, what? I knew that you would appreciate that, Jacqueline, because your love for the language. It actually is a word, a suicide. Many of us commit a suicide unwittingly. It happens to us all the time because we don't realize that what's going on behind our eyes is more important than what's going on in front of our eyes and the way that we see people is not necessarily the way they are. It's just the way that we see them. I think it's true. I, I find myself guilty of this more than I uh, am willing to admit that I have this tendency to want to be anywhere other than where I'm at. Anybody else? I want to be anywhere other than where I'm at. And again, the culture at large has created uh, mass 
hypnotism or a, a hypnotic trance that has caused people just to be merely sleepwalkers and they don't know how to be present. But when it comes to the presence of God, and this is one of the most, for me personally, life-changing discoveries that I have ever experienced is in knowing, and, and David says this so beautifully and poetically, that there is, listen now, there is no way, no way to not be in the presence of God. Here's another word for you. It has to do with the everywhereness of his presence. The, re- the reality has to do with our awareness. Knowing that he is near even when he doesn't seem to be near. Understanding that as one great theologian said that the perceived absence of God's presence is absolutely absolute actually the proof of his presence shall i repeat that to you the perceived absence of god's presence is absolutely actually proof of his presence i think this is what david is saying again so beautifully and uh, I know my audience relatively well after all these years of coming here, and I think I can say to you with all due respect that this kind of spirituality is not necessarily ethereal. It is not always something because I, uh, I'm just going to be very candid with you. I don't feel, quote-unquote, as a charismatic or a Pentecostal, I don't feel, quote-unquote, spiritual, that often. And I put it in quotations and air quotes. And unless I miss my guess, most of you find yourself in the same experience, right? That you don't feel spiritual. But the truth is, everything is spiritual. It truly is. The presence of God is not ethereal. It's not strange. It doesn't belong to the charismatic and the Pentecostals. Spirituality, I don't care how numb you are, is something that you're experiencing if you still have a pulse. That's why so many people, I think, find themselves jaded because they assume that they are... Spirit, uh, human beings here have, trying to have a spiritual experience when in reality we are spirit beings having a human experience. And that we don't realize it, but that God is always coming to us disguised as your own unique and sometimes problematic life. But I don't see it because, you know, I've been conditioned that if it doesn't manifest or if it's not made visible in a certain way, then God has totally abandoned me. Isn't it true? I mean, isn't this the, what most of us deal with? You know, this has been a huge learning curve. I told you I wanted to talk to you about learning to be present to the presence of God because spirituality is not unearthly or weird or ethereal. 
I mean, we live in a world that is overstimulated with the spectacular, so much so overstimulated with the spectacular until we miss what is hidden in plain sight. We, I mean, we hear the term pay attention, and it is costly, isn't it? Thank you. Yeah, it really is costly to pay attention. It, you know, it reminds me of what Elizabeth Barrett Browning said so beautifully, uh, and she was making reference to Moses in the burning bush. She said, earth is crammed with heaven. You know, we're so desperate to get to heaven, we don't realize that he brought heaven to earth. That our prayer is not thy kingdom go, but thy kingdom come. That he said that when you pray, right, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. And one, a better translation is in earth as it is in heaven. Heaven never has, and I'll say this for those of you that are not familiar with, never, heaven never has been in a direction. Never has been in a direction. It's always been in another dimension. You were singing earlier about the veil has been removed. You, you're, you're taking from the text that talks about how the veil of the temple at his death when he cried, it is finished, was torn from top to bottom. And it wasn't from bottom to top, but it was from top to bottom, and it wasn't from side to side, which infers to me that this has to do with him rending the veil from what we perceive to be unattainable and out of reach so that it come to where we are. And by the way, that's a veil that I could spend the rest of the morning describing to you and its great intricacies and detail that hung in a literal physical temple. But the veil that Paul talks about in Corinthians is not a veil that spans several feet as a partition keeping people out from the presence of God, the tangible presence of God, but he talks about a veil that is basically only six inches wide that hangs in another temple between these temples here. And that veil still remains for a lot of people. In fact, the word veil, I feel myself drifting here. The word veil, when we're first introduced to it in the Old Testament, in, because when you, I mean, when you think about drapery or a veil, I mean, that's another met metaphor for it. When you think about it, you know that it, it, it's, it's something that is somewhat of a tapestry. It is the weaving, the intricate weaving of the drapery or the veil, as it's called in the Old Testament. And he says that, that word veil there is the word for a thinker. That's the problem with most of us. We don't understand that over-explanation will always rob us of astonishment. We would rather know him with our minds rather than knowing him with our hearts. And I promise you without question that your heart has far more capacity to experience God than your mind ever could. If you want me to explain it to your mind, 
if you want me to explain it in such a way that your logic and your rationale can engage with it, you're a lost cause. I would rather have a heart that makes love than a mind that makes sense. I'm telling you, I, most of you know if you've been in any of the previous visits where I've spoken that I am a thinker. This is the sentence that my wife was given 45 years ago. <laughs> to go through extended periods of times in deafening silence with me in the same room. I'm in close proximity to her, but I'm not fully present to her because I'm somewhere else. And I, like so many, have found myself in pursuit of an encounter with him that comes in my ability to comprehend that which cannot even be closely apprehended. I hope I'm helping you. But back to what Elizabeth Barrett Browning said. She said, the earth is crammed with heaven, but only those who remove their shoes and turn aside are able to see it. The bush is always burning. I think that's one of the reasons why in the many resurrection appearances that Jesus is always materializing, manifesting in, most, in the most unexpected places to the most unexpected people. You, you have certain expectations of him and uh, you are disappointed in him and the real, the real issue is, is that you're disappointed in your own expectations and not in him. Because when he didn't do or reveal himself in the way that you thought he would. I mean, how many times have you said, I thought surely. Right? Is it possible that your disappointment has nothing to do with him but in your expectations of him? And you missed his visitation in your life? Because your expectation had already been set for it to come in a certain way through a certain person. Or we tend to think that the people that speak more clearly into our lives and the ones who convey the most wisdom are the purveyors of truth like myself. That, that this is the medium through which God speaks more clearly to you without understanding that most of the time he is speaking to you extraordinary things through the ordinary. You know, you know the old proverb that says when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And some of the most profound teaching moments in my own life, I promise you, have not been by scholars. It's not come through the medium of scholars. It's not come through the learned. But it's come through those that seem to have a, a grasp of something that defies logic, and that is his unconditional love. 
when, uh, when Moses engages this. You know, my question is, had it not been burning every time that he'd passed it? Had it not, I mean, is, is it possible? You know, there's, there's many of you, I'm sure, that are entertaining all kinds of ideas that, you know, he is in a desert with a, where the temperatures reach 120 degrees during the day. So did it just con- uh, spontaneously combust, or was it something that has always been burning and he just didn't notice it? If there's anything that I want to learn more about is being a noticer. <laughs> and the exchange that takes place when he begins to engage <clears throat> this bush and this voice that is emanating from it, when he, he asks the question, you know, who shall I say is sending me? He's, you know, and he, he gives him his name, and uh, it's Yahweh, which I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I understand enough to know about this, that when God said that, in order to utter, to, in order to enunciate that particular name, it basically was saying the breath of God. Even the enunciation of it was Yahweh. Which the, the first consciousness and awareness of the presence of God was when God took the first breath on the planet. It was not Adam that took the first breath on the planet. It was God who took the first breath on the planet. And the wonderful thing about that is if, you know, God does not love, he is love, his essence is love. You can say all kinds of things in your attempts to describe what God is like, but his essence is love. So the first breath that was ever taken on this planet was taken by unconditional love. Which leads me into another line of thought that even when an atheist forms on his lips the words, I do not believe in God, he is doing it by the very breath of God. He's unaware of it, but he's doing it by the very breath of God. I know that this probably for some people does, uh, does not even remotely relate to spirituality. But probably the most spiritual thing that you do is what you're doing right now unconsciously and involuntarily, and that's just breathing. I'll never forget, I think it was about 10 years ago, you ever, have you ever woken up in the middle of the night and maybe you, when you woke up, and I'm not, I'm, I'm talking about wide awake, and you wake up, and most of the time you are rationalizing as to, well, why am I awake? It never occurs to you that he was the one that woke you up. Now, come on now. I mean, I, I've had that experience more than once where you know, I'd wake up, it's three in the morning or four in the morning, and, I, and I'm sitting on the edge of the bed, and, and my thoughts go in this direction, you know, what, I'm, I'm talking about as awake as if I had slept eight or ten hours. Why am I awake? On this particular night, I had the awareness, I had the consciousness 
that this was something that was coming directly from him. I get up and I go into our den and it's pitch black. It's so black, you know, I, I have walked in that area so much until I don't have to see where I'm going. I know how many, ne- how many steps it is, you know, from one place to the next. I sit down on the couch and as I'm sitting there waiting, just waiting, I began to hear my pulse in my ear because it was so silent and so dark and I could hear the rhythmic in my ear. (laughs) Some of you are looking at me rather strange. That's okay. I'm used to it. And as I'm sitting there, I start getting this incredible download. And I began to, when when the sun finally came up, I I was determined not to turn the lights on. When the sun came up, I immediately began to do some research, and I discovered, and I'll try to cut to the chase on this, I discovered something very interesting about this. Most of you already know, if you are aware of prenatal life, that before there's brainwave activity, the first thing that happens is the heartbeat. There I was in the darkness as if I was in the darkness of a womb. Really what was happening without me being fully aware of it is God was trying to birth something in me and he didn't need me to turn the lights on. He was bringing me... See, everything that he's ever done starts in the darkness. The creation started in the darkness. Every tree that you see growing out of the ground started in the darkness and pressed its way up through the soil, reaching for the sun. I mean, he even will say this in the psalm. He will talk about the darkness is not darkness to you at all because it is light. He will say that in Psalm 139. And so, you know, I thought, well, okay, I think I understand that, but what is this all about? What is it saying to me? What What is it doing about increasing my sensitivity and my preceptivity to the presence of God? And so I began to read a little further. And, of course, I remember because I was present in the birth of all three of our children, thanking God that I was a man and not a woman (laughs) as I witnessed this miracle. And I read that with an infant, remember I talked about the complexity and... (sighs) you know, all of, of, of the, the cacophony, the sounds, all these things that keep us from be, engaging with the presence of God. And I read that with an infant, <clears throat> of course, you already are ahead of me. You know that the only sounds that that infant hears as in gestation is the sound of its mother's heartbeat and the muffled sounds that are coming through her abdomen. And they are muffled, aren't they? But that infant can hear the sound of its mother's heartbeat. 
This is what I found fascinating, that whenever the infant emerges from its mother's womb into the bright lights of the delivery room, something happens in the wiring of its brain. It literally turns down the volume of its own heartbeat and turns up the volume of the external stimuli that it will now be exposed to so it can learn to navigate the visible world. That's when I realized that God was trying to birth something in me as it related to perceiving his presence and being more aware because the sounds around me that I have to navigate, that influence me, that distract me, are much louder than the sound of his heartbeat for me. Maybe that's the reason why John was grossly misunderstood even by his colleagues because he was not satisfied just to sit in an audience and listen to the profound teachings of Jesus. No, he had to be as near him as possible and press his ear on the bosom of Jesus. He was the one who was known as the one who leaned up on his breast. Now I'm starting to feel passionate about this. He was the one who was known for leaning upon his breast. I believe that might have been why he said in John chapter 1 that Jesus came from the bosom of the Father, not from the mind of God, but from the very bosom of the Father. Maybe what I'm inviting you here to to experience (coughs) is to unplug, not just occasionally, but to learn to live unplugged. To deal, and I don't mean to sound trivial or just culturally relevant, but to deal with this very real thing of FOMO. The fear of missing out. Because everything around you in the material world is vying for your attention. They want a piece of your attention. They're always... I mean, this, this is the strategy of distraction that has always been in play, but probably now more than ever before. That's why I titled this, Learning to be Present to the Presence. And so why does God want you to be present to his presence? It's, it really has nothing to do at all with um, him being self-absorbed. You know, because he's paying attention to you when you're totally oblivious to him. That should be a, a great freeing idea. Because most of the time when we become, <coughs> when we become aware of our lack of awareness... We spiral into condemnation, don't we? Oh, why haven't I been paying attention? Why, you know, he he has he's been over here in the margins. He's been over here, you know, on the peripheral, trying to trying to get my attention. And then when we finally realize 
our lack of awareness, there, there is this crushing condemnation. But that's, see, that's, <clears throat> if you feel that, that has nothing to do with what God is attempting to do. The only reason why he wants your attention, would you like to know why he wants your attention? Is so that he, not so that he can inform you. See, you would prefer that, you know, he wants my attention because he has something that he must say to me. Thank you. That he must say to me. No. The reason why he wants your attention is because he wants to restore you to the wholeness that you have lost and the holiness because you cannot separate wholeness and holiness. The ground on which you stand is holy. That's why I want you to take your shoes off. I want to ground you again. You know, many of you are familiar with this concept of grounding. <clears throat> We're talking to somebody just the other day. My apologies. We're talking to somebody just the other day that... Uh, that was dealing was something internally that had that had assaulted their equilibrium and uh, I, I'm not that familiar with it but I remember many years ago when I was first told about it it was suggested to me by someone when I was suffering severely from jet lag having traveled across so many different time zones in transatlantic flight and when they first said it to me I I smiled and was kind, but I thought that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. Grounding. This person suggested to me, she said, go out and take your shoes off and walk barefoot in the grass. I've since come to understand she was on to something because there was a disconnect in me. I had been up so long and in a space in which I did not belong, transcending all these time zones. And when I finally came down, my body was not where my mind had been. Am I helping anybody? Am, is this making sense to you? Moses would take, was told, you take your shoes off because the ground you stand on is holy ground. See, he wants to restore you to wholeness and holiness, which is not a strict moral code. Because every person that Jesus ever healed, it was not just because of a sympathetic response to their situation. Every person, when he healed a blind person, he did not just see someone who was blind, but he saw someone who was missing so many things that he desired for them to see. When he healed someone who was crippled, he was healing someone, bringing them into wholeness, knowing that they would have to learn to balance and walk all over again, but eventually come into wholeness. When he healed someone who had leprosy, this dreaded skin condition, 
I think we, we miss that, that instantly their skin goes from this disgusting eczema, this disgusting condition to being porcelain-like, but now they're going to have to learn how to see themselves like that rather than see themselves the way they were. This is the whole point in, the, in counting the presence of God, being, learning to be present to the presence of God, is so that you can see what He's always seen in you that you've never been able to see in yourself. We miss how many times. Go ahead and stand. <clears throat> we miss how many times in Scripture when we are led into um, when we're led into uh, a story about Jesus healing someone and we miss quite often that he said and Jesus saw a man he didn't see the condition they were in he saw a man or he saw a widow. Remember the widow of Nain? When he encounters, you know, he's got this entourage following him, and they encounter this funeral procession. You remember that story? This <clears throat> collision of sorts was getting ready to take place. And when he saw this woman, this widow, who now has lost her son, does not say that he saw a widow. He saw a woman. See, to me, that, that's what's so paramount in learning to be present to the presence of God. Because what it does is causes you to see Him for all that He is and see yourself for who that you are. To know that he doesn't love you because you are doing what you should do or could do, but he loves you because he knows that none of us are as we should be or doing what we could be doing, but he simply loves us because of who he is. Say something prof profound. I just did. And you missed it. Oh, I want to see a miracle. You know, how many times have I seen, heard people say, I've never really seen a miracle? Well, I think Einstein was right. He said there's only two ways to live, only two ways to live. One is though nothing is a miracle, and the other as though everything is a miracle. person standing next to you is an absolute miracle. Tell them that. They really are. You're an absolute miracle. <clears throat> Lord, we just ask that you would open the eyes of our heart. Help us to understand that most of us at this very moment are 
at the portal of heaven. Some of you right now are in what you would call between a rock and a hard place. I'm not entirely sure the derivation of that particular phrase, between a rock and a hard place, but I know a man, I know about a man that was between a rock and a hard place who had really made a mess of his life. Remember Jacob? And he's wrestling. <clears throat> it's always been humorous to me that he's here a human is wrestling with a deity. But God was just tolerating it. Right? Maybe it was because he was waiting for him to get totally exhausted. Because when you come to the end of yourself and the end of what you know, that's usually where you find God anyway. You know what happened to him. He makes the most unlikely thing his pillow a rock. He sees this ladder that is extended to heaven. It's been there all along. And when he finally woke up, I don't mean he just opened his eyes. He really had an awaking. Because not just, most of you have your eyes open, but as, that doesn't mean you're awake. Any more than you standing right there on that front row means that you are fully here. And he woke up. Remember what he said? Surely, surely God was in this place and I didn't know it. That, that, that should be encouraging to you on a very practical level. That Many of you right now, between a rock and a hard place, God has made that your pillow. <clears throat> he's, made it, he made it, he's made it a place where you're going to experience an awakening. <laughs> he wants your attention. Father, we thank you this morning that in all of my rambling and all of my attempts, Lord, to uh, help people to be more present, more aware, to experience more connectivity, that uh, it's you that has been here among us, walking among us, speaking to us as you speak through us. Help your sons and daughters in this room right now to understand that you, uh, you, you don't really want anything from them other than what you really desire to give to them. Everything that you require of us, you give to us. And I ask, Lord, that people would have fresh encounters. I, I, don't want, I, want this, I want this to have a lingering effect. When they leave here this morning and they step over the threshold, of this building, I pray that they step into another dimension, another world, other than the world that they've always lived in, and they learn to see you, perceive you, hear you, encounter you in ways that they never previously imagined, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, 
Check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.